Hello, and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and retired Air Force Colonel. As our listeners know here in America, this month we mark Memorial Day in the United States. It's a day when all Americans pay tribute to those brave men and women who made the ultimate sacrifice in service to our nation. Memorial Day is the culmination of a, a month of events throughout May in which we honor members of the US military past and present through commemorations and events like Military Appreciation Month, VE Day, Armed Forces Day, and of course, Memorial Day. But what Americans may not be as aware of is an important anniversary that the nation is also marking in 2021. One that gets to the heart of how our nation honors and remembers those who gave all for our safety and freedom. And I'm talking about the 100 year anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. It was 100 years ago this year on November 11th, 1921 to be exact, when a horse-drawn horse caisson carried the body of an unknown American soldier from World War I through Washington, D.C. and across the Potomac River to Arlington National Cemetery. A state funeral was held and the unknown soldier was interred in the new Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. During the ceremony, President Warren G. Harding placed a Medal of Honor on the casket. In the years since, unknown service members from World War II, Korean War, and the Vietnam War have been interred and honored at the tomb. And since 1926, just five years after it was created, the tomb has been guarded by an elite troop of soldiers from nearby Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall. Of course, it wasn't called that back in the day. At first, it was only during daylight hours, but since 1937, they've been there around the clock without pause. Today, we have a special guest to talk about the significance of the centennial of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier 100 years after its creation, as well as the connections to the Medal of Honor. And he is clearly an expert on the topic, as during his more than 20-year Army career, he served in the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard. Today, he's the founder of the Society of the Honor Guard for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and an expert on the history and tradition of the tomb and of the guard that has protected it for generations. Sergeant Major Gavin McElvena, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you join us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And Mo, it's been great getting to know you beforehand. Yeah, before we started recording, we were talking about um, parachute landing falls and how to properly exit a plane. It's it's just a typical army guy that would actually leave a perfectly good airplane. So oh, we're going to start that way. Okay. All right. Well, I thought we already had. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> if you guys would just pilot those things correctly, we wouldn't have to jump out of them. Well, you know, it's just more room for us on the landing. <laughs> right. Okay, so we'll start off. Most Americans have likely heard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery, with some who have even visited it themselves at some point in their lives. But many might not know as much about the elite group of soldiers who stand guard at the tomb 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, rain or shine, heat or cold. It's a tradition that dates back to 1926, an unbroken chain of soldiers who come from every state and territory in the nation and from every walk of life. You were one of these soldiers. So we have to know, how did you become a member of the Tomb Guard and how has that service defined your life both while on active duty and now almost 20 years later in civilian life? Well, it definitely has impacted me throughout my military career as well as in the civilian life. Um, when I came into the military, I uh, didn't know anything about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, growing up on the West Coast, um, it really wasn't taught in our schools that I can remember. Uh, I remember the recruiters pointing out at the Tomb Guard identification badge on the large poster of, of medals and decorations that a you know a soldier could possibly receive service. Put it in the back of my mind, went about my career. And then when I was in Italy the second time um, at the Airborne Battalion Combat Team there, all of a sudden two young staff sergeants show up and they're Tomb Guards coming straight from Fort Myer. And I helped them through jump master course that was going on. And they talked to me about the tomb and I began to understand the mission of the tomb guard a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I made the big decision to come off of jump status and apply for the regiment. And that's how I, I was accepted and into the regiment and got there. Um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about leadership uh, while assigned to the regiment. 
And the attention to detail that tomb guards go through in their training uh, just naturally carries over into everything you do in, in life. And sure. I can tell you many stories from former tomb guards, you know, that walked before I was even born where our uh, attention to detail is um, laughed at by our spouses uh, and we all have the same tics. Uh, you know, I, I never went so far as ironing my underwear or socks when I was down at the quarters, but you know, those little things when I step out today, you know, if I'm, if I'm putting on a dress, you know, uh, in a uniform, or if I'm putting on a suit and tie, I take those extra minutes just because it was beat into my head as a tomb guard to that right. got to be a hundred percent when you walk out the door. So things like that, and just, um, integrity and perseverance are, are, are items that I've carried with me into my civilian career and just the rest of my life. Absolutely. Now, it's like one of those things, I don't know how it can't. So I think that's really neat. And that's another thing too, that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is typically we think of in the military, when you get an assignment, it's needs of the service. So wherever the, the military needs you, but what's unique about the, um, the tomb guard soldiers and the sentinels is that that is a, you have to apply to do this. It's not like somebody says, okay, this is your job. You have to want to do that and then apply. And it's, it's certainly not that easy to do, right? I mean, it's not like they just assign you to it. You have to want to apply, right? Yeah, when you come into the regiment, it's a requirement that you're doing three years. Uh, so I was a staff sergeant when I applied to the regimental sergeant major asking for permission to join the regiment. Uh, and, you know, he looked at my record and uh, saw what I had done with my deployments and whether or not I fit what they were looking for. And you know, accepted me into the regiment. But once you get there, then you're assigned to uh, one of the companies and you're expected to be able to do six months before you can, you know, learn your trade before you can apply to go uh, to one of the specialty platoons, such as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or the U.S. Army Drill Team or caissons. And, um, you know, when I got there, I let my platoon sergeant know this is what I want to do. And he laughed at me and said, you'll never get down there because I'm a six foot four staff sergeant and there's one position down there. Uh, thanks to my tomb guard buddies who didn't quite tell me that. Uh, <laughs> I was a little uh, chest fallen, but you know, uh, after about three months of being in the regiment and learning my job, uh, they came back and said, we can't find a six foot four staff sergeant. So are you still ah. interested? And I said, absolutely. That's what, you know, that's why I came off jump status to come to the regiment. Um, and it was a challenge as a mid-grade NCO to put yourself into training mode right. uh, and be trained by E3s and in E2s that had already earned their Tomb Guard badge and, uh, you know, be told by them that you don't know how to call commands. You don't know how to march. You certainly don't know how to put a uniform, you know. Right, uh, right. That, that was very humbling. Uh, and it took me about seven months and 10 days to go through the process to earn my badge. And I learned a lot about, um, again, the attention to detail. And it was all taught by uh, soldiers that, in essence, you know, I was their squad leader and they were teaching me to be the best, you know, relief commander that I could be. And uh, I, I owe it all to them. Uh, yeah. So they, they definitely drug me through uh, some interesting training exercises to get me up to speed. I, you know, when I went down there, uh, I have to say that it took three months before they let me outside. Wow, I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't march to the standard that was expected of a tomb guard. I couldn't call commands the way that they wanted it. I definitely didn't learn the weapons inspection, you know, overnight. That took a lot of time as a relief commander, and only when they said, "Yeah, we'll let you outside," did they let me outside. And you wow. know, then in the quarters at the time, the quarters have changed a little bit, but there was a little kitchen window, and that was what I could see in the daylight. You know, I could see feet walking past and forth. And other than that, I stayed in the quarters and, wow, wow. and trained uh, constantly. So I took a lot of their training techniques with me into my later military career for training soldiers, a lot of repetition uh, and definitely into the civilian career. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting too, like we kind of another thing that's unique about that too. And I think a lot of people have this, this perception of the military where it's, you know, the senior ranking person, the rank based on what's on your shoulder or on your sleeve. Um, is always the one who's outranking and therefore must be the one who's more, you know, more intelligent or more skilled in that particular thing. But it's interesting, it's a great leadership lesson that sometimes there's an informal rank structure where the person who 
um, based on what's on their uniform may outrank you, but they have the skills uh, that the, the under the, the lower ranking person has the skill sets that they need to train the, the higher ranking person. So it's, it's, it says a lot about you too, that you can allow yourself to be humbled and to take the lessons and, and do that. So it, it, it definitely was a challenge uh, to be in charge of a relief that um, if something went wrong, it was my butt. Right. Uh, but I had no ability to correct or control that other than just having a talk because, again, I wasn't qualified yet. Right. Um, and then a lot of NCOs, I'm not going to lie, a lot of NCOs couldn't make that transition and yep. they, they didn't make it, you know. And during my time, 90% of the soldiers that would try out for the tomb just didn't meet the standards. And wow. it's not saying that they were bad soldiers or leaders or in any way, shape, or form. They just couldn't rise to the standards expected of the tomb guards. Um, yeah. And, and and I'm sure that uh, percentage is probably still the same today. I don't think they've lowered their standards for anything Good. and and will hold people to that. And, and you either rise to it or, or you, you just, you go back to the regiment. Right. Well, I mean, that's what makes it an elite group, again, that you have to apply to be there and that you have to really want to be there and that you have to persevere. Uh, yeah, 90 percent attrition rate or maybe it's 10 percent. I forget the way the, the way the math works, but the fact that 90 percent of the people that want to do this don't actually get to do that. So the, what what we really want to know about now is what is a day in the life like for the tomb guard, especially if you're not just looking out the kitchen window. <laughs> Um, but so kind of tell us the, what the day was look like in the, in the duties of the tomb guard, especially for the average American who may not even, they maybe have seen the postcard or seen a little uh, snippet on TV, but what would surprise the average American about your day, your daily day? I think probably the, the one thing that would surprise them the most is the fact that when they're standing on the steps, looking at the tomb of the unknown soldier, they have no idea that we're living beneath them. We're, on, we're underneath those steps, underneath the amphitheater. Um, oh. We work on a 24 hour cycle on paper and it truly comes out to be about 26, 28 hours, you know, with, with coming in early, leaving mm -hmm. late, those kinds of things. But, you know, a 24 hour cycle for us is coming down to the quarters with uh, all of the uniforms and equipment that we would need for any type of weather that might happen. Uh, and we first start out by inspecting the quarters from the previous relief. So if they're cleaning the quarters and the weapons and um, everything that's inside there, if it's not to standard, uh, we don't accept the quarters and we don't, we don't start duty until it's clean. Uh, so that's where your days can sometimes get extended. But once right. you've accepted the quarters, the very first thing we'll do is get a sentinel um, in ceremonial uniform and post them in what we call the BOLO, which is the eight o'clock um, guard change. So as a relief commander, my job is solely changing the guard uh, and conducting re-ceremonies. The Sentinel's job is solely to walk the mat and guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Um, I didn't walk the mat uh, when I was there because I was a relief commander. I had a different job. Mm -hmm. Now, I would walk the mat at nighttime um, to give my guys a break so they could get some downtime uh, after all the work they did during the day. But for me, it was making sure that uh, one, I've accepted quarters, that they're clean, the weapons are clean and ready to go, and that my first sentinel can get out the door on time. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, the day will flow. If it's summertime, you know, the sentinel will walk every, uh, will, will change the sentinel every half hour during the hours the cemetery is open. And at wintertime or anytime during the night, whatever portion of the year it is, we'll change out a sentinel every hour. Um, in between those guard changes is, uh, re-ceremonies. Um, they can be public re-ceremonies that, you know, you or I can participate in now mm -hmm. or all the way up to the formal full honors or joint service re-ceremonies, such as the president of the United States. Um, it just, that, that will dictate how our day's flow will go. But most of the time, say it's a whole day, we don't have ceremony, we'll do the guard changes all day long. Uh, and we just kind of roll with it, um, take out the wreaths for uh, the private ceremonies and, and conduct those. Um, and as the day comes to a close, we'll, we'll close out the cemetery, ask the public to depart, and then lower the flag from the cemetery. And once, uh, you know, most of the cemetery has been cleared out of, of uh, visitors, we'll start our training. 
So during the daytime, if you're not a tomb guard already, you're training all the time. Mm -hmm. So for a new person, um, they're standing in front of a mirror, they're practicing their walk, their heel clicks, their weapons manual, they will change uniform about a million times and (laughs) press them out. And, you know, it's, it's all for, uh, getting them ready to go up, you know? So, um, what to an outsider might seem like hazing, we do something called a three minute dress drill. And that is going from the uniform you're in, whatever it is Mm -hmm. to full ceremonials and ready to walk out the door in three minutes. Wow. And that's for, you know, something happens to the Sentinel on the plaza, or maybe there's a uniform malfunction out there or whatever reason that I need to put a brand new Sentinel up on the plaza. We can do it in three minutes. Wow. Um, Which is one of those things that I've carried on into my personal life is changing really quickly. Um, uh, But, you know, so things like that happen in the quarters. Their knowledge is constantly tested. They're constantly trying to earn a way outside to do their job, you Mm -hmm. know, and and part of the training process is your uniform, getting it to above regimental standards, um, which the regimental standards are, are army standards, but they take it a little bit further and we just go a little further than them. Yeah. Uh, learning your knowledge and then learning your mission, which this is an active duty guard post. Um, it is um, dictated by army regulations. Um, and learning how to do your job is, is a big part of what they're doing down there. Um, unbeknownst to most of the public underneath the Memorial Amphitheater, it, you know, how it goes in a circle, there's catacombs. And during my time in 1997, we would train in the catacombs uh, and the public wouldn't even know it. So I would be down there calling guard changes with sentinels in training with a trainer watching us all day long um, just to get it right. And then at night when the cemeteries close and the civilians have all left, we will go up onto the plaza as a relief and we will train on the plaza. Um, you know, there's always a sentinel that's on duty and that's their primary job, but the rest of us will go up and we'll practice whether it's a guard change or a wreath ceremony or what have you. Um, and then after about two or three hours of training at night, then the guys will, guys and gals will come downstairs and start working on their uniforms and cleaning the quarters. And, and, you know, most people think, oh, you just get some sleep. These guys don't, they don't sleep. Yeah. In training, you you just don't sleep. Yeah. So um, at about twenty three hundred hours, we'll come back onto the plaza for taps. Uh, taps is played through the cemetery on top of the amphitheater. So we'll bring the entire relief up, and we will pay our respects uh, one more time at night to the unknown soldiers, um, and then we'll get ready for a relief change in the morning. And and that's a twenty four hour cycle for wow. us. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, we, when, when you look at us on paper, we really don't work that much. You know, we work nine days most of the time out of a month, but those nine days are some solid days and yeah. a work set for a Sentinel is, you know, 24 hours on 24 off 24 hours on 24 off and then a final 24 and then they'll get four days off. Right. Um, you know, if the Sentinels uh, on another relief are running short, we may have to go down to two reliefs instead of three. Um, and then we're just working back to back, you know, days on, yeah. days off, days on. Um, so it, it, um, a lot of people think that it's pretty easy just to stand at attention and march back and forth 21 steps, but it takes its toll physically on you to do sure. it. And, and, uh, you know, once you get into the cycle and your family get kind of gets into the cycle, it, it, it goes pretty well. Um, yeah. As a group, they they bond very well as a, as a group. Uh, the families are definitely probably know our knowledge just as good as a tomb guard does because they're constantly hearing it, uh, you right. know, critiquing us and looking at our shoes like, oh, no, Sarge's not going to like your shoes, you know, <laughs> it over. Uh, you know, so th- there is a lot that goes on in, in a day sentinel, you know, and, and the public, they see a sentinel walk the mat and then he disappears underneath the quarters and, and that's it. So yeah, they're, they're, they're busy 24 seven down. Yeah. There. Well, and it's like that whole iceberg analogy, right? Like the, the, the public sees the, the one ceremonial piece of it, but they, they miss all the prep and, and all the things that go into it. And then you bring it in your families too, because I'm sure you give your wife the three minute uniform drill and you're like, I don't like what you wear more to that party. So three minutes back out, we're ready to go. Yeah. Right. So yeah, my, sure. my, my wife outranks me. She's a captain, uh, retired <laughs> captain. So that, that <laughs> promptly didn't go very far. <laughs> 
<laughs> for the marriage or the career. I get it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you, you, you talked about some of the things like the 21 steps. So what sort of questions do you get when you speak to groups uh, and include in that some of the, the maybe the top myths you'd like to dispel? Like what are some of the you, So you mentioned 21 steps. So talk about that real quick. 21 steps came about um, in about 1958 when a relief or I'm sorry, not a relief commander, but uh, um, platoon leader, Neil Cosby. Um, wanted to put a little more um, structure into what we do on a daily basis. And uh, Colonel Cosby, well, at the time, Lieutenant Cosby, but later Colonel Cosby um, wanted, instead of us just walking the length of the mat, which is what they were doing, they would walk to one end of the mat and then back. Uh, he said, okay, we're going to take 21 steps and then we're going to pause, you know, face and pause mm -hmm. for 21 seconds. And then we're going to turn and face and pause for 21 seconds. So we're constantly putting 21, which is our nation's highest form of salute and highest right. form of honor into everything that a tomb guard does. You know, I, I like to joke that if you can find a tomb guard that can count past 21, you know, <laughs> they've got to be a college graduate of some sort. <laughs> we got 21 seconds down, 22, yeah. 23. Yeah. Now you're pushing the limits here. Um, <laughs> but it, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, when I drive around, if I see, a, you know, a mile marker on the side of the road or an exit sign that's 21, I'll just, you know, instantly go back to being a tomb garden and, right. and you'd be surprised how many of us former guys will guys and gals will will take pictures of stuff like that and share it with each other going oh hey look 21 you know it's right uh kind of odd but that's um you know the 21 gun salute the 21 steps and the 21 seconds of silence are are just burned into us yeah and as you know we step onto the plaza uh, you'll notice that a sentinel does not wear rank uh, and there's a reason for that. The relief commander will wear his rank, his or her rank, I should say. Um, we never wear a name tag. So we're, we're you know, just um, out there with potentially personal medals only. But the Sentinel who walks the mat will never outrank the unknown soldier. And since yep. we don't know what his rank is, we, we don't know if they're, you know, an officer or an enlisted. I don't know what they did, but we know they're Medal of Honor recipients. We know they're recipients of the Purple Heart. That immediately earns our respect and we will never outrank them. We always salute the tomb because we're saluting Medal of Honor recipients as we pass it. Um, that's again, one of those things that people don't pick up on sometimes. They wonder yep. why. Um, you know, there's some lucky individual out there who wrote an email about a decade ago that floated around the wonderful world of the internet that gave these great myths about how I, as a tomb guard, I'm not supposed to curse or drink, or I'm supposed to be a monk for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, you know, and I always joke, if I could find that gentleman or whoever wrote it, I'd like to have a little chat in the wood line with you. Uh, <laughs> um, no, you know, when we're at the tomb and we're doing our job, it's like anything. We are professional soldiers. We hold ourselves to the highest possible standards and you're not going to see that at the tomb. You know, the rest of the time we're soldiers, right? Soldiers curse, soldiers drink. Soldiers <gasps> soldiers. No. Oh yeah. I know it's a crazy concept. Uh, but people truly believe the fact that I'm not supposed to curse or drink. And, you know, if I could get away with doing a presentation with a glass of scotch in my hand, I would do that one of these days, <laughs> yeah. uh, but no luck. Um, yeah. You know, those, those are kinds of the, the things uh, I think that stand out the most. We get a lot of interesting questions um, in our presentations. Um, some are really thoughtful and deep um, and others are ju just the basics kind of stuff like that question. You know, uh, I know that people don't understand why we change our weapon from inside to outside when we walk the mat. And that's a, it's very simple. It's we keep our weapon outside of the tomb to provide that protection from whatever threat might be out there. So right. you'll always see the Sentinel's weapon on the outside of their shoulder away from the tomb as a, just another, you know, physical barrier to protect the tomb of the unknown soldier. I love it. Yeah. So I'm a DC tour guide and I was taking, I was, you know, trying to get middle school kids to pay attention for any length of time. I give them things. I tell them how long to count, how many steps I give them things to do while waiting for the, the you know, that's the, the question was, you know, what, what shoulder about like, right shoulder or left shoulder and like half of them are like oh right shoulder half of them left shoulder i'm like well you're both right you know so I, I think that's awesome and again it's those little attention to detail things not just in the way your uniform is put together not in just the knowledge that you have but in how you execute your mission and everything has 
significance, not, you know, not winning, not wearing rank on your uniform. So you don't inadvertently outrank the, the unknown soldier. Um, so I have to ask, is it true that you're supposed to have a 30 inch waist to be a Sentinel? Yes. Really? Add a 30 inch waist. I still have, <laughs> I still have the belt. Um, I no longer fit it. Uh, uh, honest. one too many pizzas, you know, as you grow up, but yes, uh, back then you, you had to, you had to be proportional and they really wanted uh, thin waists, thin people. Um, so yeah, at one point in my life, I did have a 30 inch waist in the military, um, but no longer. See, it's those little things. I don't think people know, but that that, nope. that kind of stuff fascinates nope. me. And our, I, our shoes, I think that a lot of people wonder how we get our shoes so shiny. They've got to be fake and they're not. They're, they're just straight leather shoes. Black leather, basic training issue kind of shoe that we've built up a little bit to protect us from the marble because mm -hmm. the marble in the winter gets cold and in the summer it obviously gets very hot. Um, and, and we put some cheaters on the inside of the steel so we're not smacking our ankle bones together like they did in the early days of the hardcore oh. guards. Um, but each of those shoes weighs about five pounds. And really? so if, yeah, oh yeah. And if so, if you watch a tomb guard as they walk, they have a really distinct toe flip. And that's because of they're trying not to catch their toe uh, on anything. And and you're wearing five pound shoes. Uh, so Holy cow. That's where you get that little walk that, that you see the Sentinel do. And it's, it's because of the shoes and just learning how to march appropriately. Is that like getting your sea legs, like when you come off of duty and then you're just wearing your civilian shoes and you just walk around like lifting your legs up like a like a dog who's got booties on? It's, um, <laughs> you know, when I left the, the old garden, I went on in my career and, you know, I, I, as I got higher in rank, I know I'm supposed to set the standard and do all the right things DNC wise. But it was really hard to not stand like a tomb guard with my with with the feet together yep. as compared to the 45 yep. because it's easier on your knees and your back to stand that way. And, and if you're facing an audience, you know, you can bend your knees and people aren't going to see you doing right. It. Whereas at a 45, you'd see those knees. Um, so doing that and then just automatically, as soon as you start marching, you kind of get into that, that glide, the little tomb guard glide going on. And, and it's real easy when you notice somebody, uh, you know, a tomb guard notices another tomb guard doing it there. They, you know, pick on them a little bit, but that's a hard habit to break once you leave sure. the regiment is, is, and even the regimental soldiers, they march a very distinct way and, and uh, it's hard for them to break that as well. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Okay. So sorry. I'm just fascinated by this. So this is fun for me. Um, but since we are a podcast that focuses on all things metal, metal, all things Medal of Honor, and you mentioned this, um, that's another thing that a lot of people don't know that all of the service members that were interred at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier have been awarded the Medal of Honor. And you also mentioned the Purple Heart. Why do you think it's important that those interred at the tomb receive our nation's highest recognition for valor in combat? Well, I, I you know, as a as a service member and, and having uh, the distinct pleasure of meeting some of the Medal of Honor recipients, in, in fact, during my time at the regiment, the MDW commander was a Medal of Honor recipient from Vietnam. Oh, wow. Um, uh, Robert, General Robert Foley, uh, who, who stood six foot five uh, and, and received his medal after, you know, dodging bullets from machine gun nests in Vietnam at six foot five and how he didn't get hit, I don't know, but yeah. you know, a, a mountain of a man and, and a, a hell of a leader. Um, you, you just, you don't know how these soldiers fell. You, you, that's, the, that's the hard part of the unknown soldier's story. You know, and as tomb guards, when we're up there at night, we we tend to talk to the unknown soldiers and we try and learn and, and be a part of them. They become brothers. And so you naturally wonder, what was your life like? Where did yeah. you come from? How did you serve? What was combat like? And, you know, they could have done the most heroic thing on, on the battlefield or, or they could have just been unlucky and, and got hit by something. We don't know. And, and I think it's appropriate that when we're taking a unknown American and saying this one will represent all of the fallen from that conflict and all of the suffering and all of the missing. Um, it's only appropriate that they are elevated to the status of a Medal of Honor recipient yep. because we don't know their rank, we don't know their service, um, but they are representing so much more than just one individual. Um, you know, in the history of the Unknown Soldiers, uh, like you mentioned, each one of the Unknown Soldiers is a recipient 
of the Medal of Honor. Each of those medals as well as the certificates are on display in the Memorial Display Room, which is in the picture behind me. Um, the World War I unknown soldier was actually also awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, um, where the, the World War II, Korea and Vietnam, they were not or awarded those medals, just the Medal of Honor. Um, you know, I think as civilians learn more about the Medal of Honor and, and, and the people that have earned it and the actions that they've done uh, and see how that impacts life and, and, and future generations, I think they'll understand that that's the only appropriate way to honor these soldiers that, that not only gave their lives for the, you know, the soldiers standing to their left and right, but to, to foreign nationals that were trying to keep free and mm -hmm. after they perish, they gave up their identity so that their families don't have the opportunity to have that personal closure and connection with them. Uh, I think that's the biggest challenge when it comes to understanding the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and what it truly represents uh, to so many Gold Star families. Uh, I, can, I can line up Tomb Guards generations deep and every one of them will tell you a story about how a Gold Star family member, whether it's a mother, father, son, brother, sister, will stand there and tell the tomb guard that's walking the mat the story of their loved one. Yeah. And before the chains were so far out and they were a lot closer, these the, the, they could stand right behind them. And I've been told this many times that, you know, they would walk the mat, they'd come down to a corner and some mother would be telling the story of their loved one. And they do their 21 seconds and they go back and they come back and they'd hear a little more of the story. And wow. they keep doing this for their entire guard shift and be thanked at the end of it saying, thank you for guarding my loved one, what, what, right. whatever it is. Um, and then the Sentinel would, you know, go back downstairs and want to come back up to try and find that individual to have a little bit of closure. And they've, they've disappeared. Wow. You know, and they're left with this moving story about how I'm standing watch over your loved one and thank you. Whether or not it truly is their loved one, you, you, right. we don't know. Um, but I, I, I was talking to a tomb guard from the 60s who went to just a restaurant the other day and was wearing his shirt. And someone goes, are you a tomb guard? He says, yeah. And he's like, thank you for guarding my brother. Oh. And, and you know, we don't, we get used to reacting to that, but, uh, you know, that individuals in their mind, obviously their loved one is missing mm -hmm. or is laying in their own grave or, you know, with the name of unknown on it. Right. And for that family saying, no, no, my loved one is the unknown soldier. Thank you for, for standing the yeah. walk over them is pretty moving. Um, yeah, and that's, for sure. Daniel comes on. That's the, that's the, that's the power of the unknown soldier and the tomb itself that I want people to understand. Right. Because it truly transcends our race, our religion, our politics, uh, you know, where right. we come from in the States. It's the one place as a nation we can come to and we're all equal and we're all paying respect to these people who left their families to go defend others and paid the ultimate sacrifice by not just dying, but losing their identity. And so they stand and represent so much more than just, just a grave with a rock over it, as, right. as some people have called it. Well, and... and and you, you know, you said something too, is that, that, that grave and the tomb of the unknown represents not just one person who's the unknown, the, 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 the physical body that's in there, but it represents everybody from that, that war or conflict. And I know it was back in 1998 when uh, the Vietnam um, unknown was exhumed and identified as Air Force Lieutenant uh, Michael Blassie. And when he was exhumed and then buried back in his hometown, the Medal of Honor for the Vietnam Unknown stayed there at the tomb, just like you said, because the award was was for all the unknown service members who gave their ultimate sacrifice in Vietnam. So what is the significance um, for, you know, specifically for the Sentinels there, having those Medals of Honor on display there? How does that impact them? How does that affect them? You know, I can't speak for the other Sentinels. I know that uh, when I had the opportunity to learn my history as a tomb guard and then go see my history uh, in the display cases, it was moving. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, the, the few times that I've met Medal of Honor recipients that are still living, it, I'm always in awe of the medal. I'm always in awe of them uh, because they're, they're, they're such down to earth 
patriots. It's right. amazing. Um, and, and you always garner some sort of leadership example from them that you can apply in your own life. Um, so being able to see it, obviously not touch it because it's in a display case, but to, right. to see it and, and then know the history. And as I've gone through the centennial process, learn a little bit more about the stories behind them and how it all came about is, is uh, you know, very moving for a Sentinel. Um, mm -hmm. Just us being on the plaza when there's no crowds, whether it's daytime or nighttime, is the best time for a two guard because you really get a chance to bond with the unknown soldiers and, and, and interact with them in ways that you can't do when the public's around. Right. I always love working the nighttime. Um, you end up talking to the, yep. the individual grapes. You do. Um, it's just part of the, part of the, the, the job that we do. Well, and that's, so you, you mentioned the centennial, which is, uh, this is this year, the centennial of the tomb of the unknown soldier. And, and so you mentioned that world war one unknown soldier was what, what started this whole um, the, the tomb of the unknown, and again this tradition that that continues on today, and so you mentioned you know at the nighttime shift maybe sometimes talking to the tomb. Do you think that's something that's that's changed over the years? Do you think sentinels that have tread the the path before you have also done the same thing? And so kind of in that question, what has changed over the years at the tomb, and what has stayed the same? You know, it's we're I blessed enough to have been assigned there as a relief commander during the time the Vietnam unknown soldier was disinterred. Oh. And I, as one of the four founders of the society, really got a chance to meet all of the decades of tomb guards. And the thing that I can tell you is that not much changes. Mm -hmm. What they did in 26 is what they're doing in 2021. There's always slight modifications. I mean, the weapon systems have changed. Like the relief commander used to carry a 1911. Uh, then it changed to a Beretta nine millimeter in 1988. And then, you know, a few years ago, it changed to a, a Sig Sauer uh, M17. So those kinds of things change. You know, the right. rifles have only had a couple changes. Um, uniforms a little bit, just depending on how the army, you know, does their dress uniforms. But the sequence, the cadence, the commands, they don't change. Uh, when I do presentations, I'm lucky enough to have um, a, a movie reel from, I think it was 1960, and to listen to the relief commander then call the same commands that I gave, Right. there's no change. Yep. The cadence is the same. So that's the unique part about being a tomb guard is when I get in a room with a relief commander that was walking in 1958, we have pretty much the same stories and the same challenges going through training that, you know, that all generations do. So it's nice having that immediate bond with, you know, a Sentinel that's on the mat today. Um, we can instantly talk about the same challenges, problems, fun, uniqueness of the, of the Sentinel. So I think that at nighttime, yeah, that I, you'd be challenged to find a tomb guard that would prefer having crowds around than not having crowds. Right. Around. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> that that's, I, I love the fact that there's so much, there's so much that has stayed the same in a in a in a span of of generations where so much changes. Uh, it's nice to know that there's some things that have stayed the same. And, and yeah, you have like because you're already part of an elite group, then you have something else that either further binds you to to somebody else because they've been through that same experience, whether it was last week or last year or decades ago. Right. So as you guys get ready to uh, mark the this centennial of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, what sort of commemorations and events? Are, are you have planned? And I know that COVID has uh, made things a little bit more difficult, um, but as this uh, focal point to bring all Americans together, who I believe was uh, Congressman Hamilton Fish, who brought the establishment of the tomb, was, was key in that. So what kind of events uh, do you guys have planned around the centennial celebration? We've got a lot, actually, um, you know, for the federal government, Arlington National Cemetery is uh, the one that is running the national commemoration. Um, Congress directed them under the NDA or National Defense Authorization Act to be that uh, agent to do the national commemoration. Part of the, the what Congress directed was being able to work with nonprofit organizations like ourselves. And um, so Arlington does a lot of the official planning for things. Um, they definitely have November 9th through 11th. They've got um, some very specific things that will happen. And when we took a look at what Congress directed, we wanted to take a broader view. 
I don't, I didn't want our organization to focus just on World War One, because the tomb of the unknown soldier encompasses so much more than just one conflict. And like you mentioned, Congressman Fish didn't want it just to be about one war. It was a place for all conflicts and healing for our nation. Um, so I've really dove into the history of all of the unknown soldiers and trying to find a way to make communities aware of their ties to the unknown soldiers. Uh, and and uh, the easiest way to start it is with our sister services. Um, most of the time, if you ask any one of them, you know, do you know your history with the unknown soldier? They're like, I don't know, we, we do a ceremony every year. They don't know that every single time the unknown soldier came home to the mainland, it was carried by the United States Navy on naval ships. Mm -hmm. It was guarded by Marines on those ships. Uh, and there are numerous instances where the Air Force has also carried unknown candidates or in the case of the Vietnam unknown soldier from Travis Air Force Base to Andrews Air Force Base. So all of the services have a hand in the unknown soldier coming home. And I think that's one of the fun challenges that I've had is to try and educate our brothers and sisters in the other services of their history and, and to make them proud of that history. Um, at the same time, getting communities involved in understanding that they too are part of all of this um, has been a big thing. So we took something from what um, President Harding did in 1921 when he was doing his eulogy for the World War I unknown soldier. He asked the nation to pause for a minute of silence to remember all who had just fallen in the conflict. And they asked the, the, those assembled to again pause to remember those that would fall in the future for the mm. defense of our nation. So we've taken that moment of silence and we've built it around something called the National Salute, where we're asking communities, however they're defined and wherever they are, to pause on November 11th at 11 o'clock and ring bells 21 times. Or if ah. you're lucky enough, you've got cannon fire or ships or, you know, you know the big stuff to do something like that, but do it 21 times, you know, tying in our 21s again, mm -hmm. and then pausing in silence and remembering those that have and those that will fall in the defense of this nation. Um, and then playing taps, you know, and, and, and that's a simple ceremony to create, whether you're reaching out to a civic organization or a veterans organization, you can make it important to your community and, and however your community is defined and, and find a way to bring your your citizens together and, and to do that so you know a lot of other nations do a really good job on armistice day you know mm -hmm. pretty much shuts down um and and it's all about remembering um, we're not so good about that sometimes it's more about hey what's on sale at the local mall yeah right and they forget those things so that's yeah. one of the things that we're asking communities to get involved with now and continue in the future um, the other way is, you know, a lot of us um, maybe uh, don't like being around crowds. Uh, and, and so for a lot of people, gardening seems to be a way to find that relaxing place in the peace. So we've asked people to create something called a never forget garden, um, whether it's at your home, like I have one outside with five rose bushes that, you know, my wife and I have lost five people in our careers and, and mm -hmm. those five bushes represent them. So every time we walk by, you know, out our front door, we're reminded of how they impacted our lives. Oh. Whether a community is an organization or just an individual wants to do this, they find us they grow with these flowers or roses, which is what we recommend the white rose, which ties back to 1921 and Sergeant Younger using white roses to make the selection. But that's a good way to create a safe place, a safe space to uh, meditate and, and become, uh, you know, uh, at ease with whatever you've lost or whoever you've lost or want to remember. Um, and when we started that, it, you know, it, it's taken off. It's kind of like the Victory Gardens of World War II. Communities and, and individuals get involved. Uh, and then I have to tell you a story about a young lady who during COVID lost her husband. Hmm. And he was a veteran. He was an Air Force veteran, actually. And because of the restrictions um, in Arizona, they, they couldn't have a service. And um, one of our associate members had put a never forget garden in his backyard. And as she's walking the trail behind the houses, she pauses and she sees this. And she asks him, what is this garden? And that's what the garden is designed for us to, to generate conversation about 
the why and, 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 and that. And so he told her and she immediately started crying and said, that's what I'm going to go do right now in my backyard to remember my husband until we can have a memorial service. So those are the ways that a simple garden marker that we've created that has the, the you know, elements of the tomb of the unknown soldier on it and some very powerful words are drawing communities together. Um, so the never forget garden is something you can do now. Uh, and I'm an infantryman. I don't grow things very well, but uh, we've got great partners with the American Rose Society that will help, you know, infantrymen like me grow things and keep them growing for a long period of time. So there's a lot of resources. You know, when it comes to the history, obviously there are some key dates in, in the World War I Unknown Soldiers history, as well as each of the other unknowns that we try and highlight. Um, so we will be going back to France as an organization, and we're working with the French government uh, and the cities in which this unknown soldier was selected on October 24th, and from where the unknown soldier departed back to the United States aboard the USS Olympia. Um, and for people that don't know it, the Olympia is still around. It, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the flagship of Admiral Dewey. It's a, one of the few remaining steel hold ships yep. of its era. It's in Philadelphia at the Independence Seaport Museum. And you can go stand where the unknown soldier was strapped to the outside of the deck because he wow. wasn't put inside. So, you know, working with organizations like that to highlight their history in the unknown soldier's history has been fantastic. Um, you know, we've got, obviously you guys are great supporters. The Daughters of the American Revolution have taken the, this mantle up. Gold Star Mothers have. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's been an amazing five years of planning leading to the centennial and I'm seeing more and more communities coming together to honor not only the unknown soldiers, but all of those gold star families and veterans who just maybe didn't come home. Right. That's a, I love, I love the never forget garden. I think that is so, that is just so powerful. And like you said, because one of my questions was, was, you know, what can the average American do and to, to honor the centennial, but not just to honor the centennial, but to, to honor any of our fallen, um, especially those that have yet to be identified and are going to be unknown for the rest of our lives and the rest of theirs. But having that moment of silence uh, and then having 21 bells or car horns or cannons or whatever you have, um, but I love a never forget garden. I think that is that is fantastic. The American Rose Society, they are experts at rose gardens. Um, but when people say, I can't plant a giant rose garden or anything, it's like, you know what? If you've got a pot that you put flowers in that are meaningful to yep. you and your family and you call that your never forget garden, that's a never forget garden. Right. And, and it's important to you. So right. it can be as detailed as you want or as small as you want. Right. I'll be at Ikea buying something I can't kill. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, man. this is so, this has been fantastic for me. And again, to any of my, uh, my past middle school tour students or future middle school uh, tour students, I now have an in with the Sentinels at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which means that uh, I'm going to get all the good trivia questions and I'm going to be able to stump them. So that's all about that, that stump in the middle school or so. Because I've really learned a lot and I, I will be going there. Uh, I'll start touring next week. And so I'll be back at the at the at the um that cemetery so i'm, I'm excited to watch everything again because i'll see things uh, through a new eye and i'll be watching for a lot more details now than i was before but well, i think you're going to enjoy it because um I, and i'm working on this with the sergeant of the guard chelsea porterfield i'm trying mm -hmm. to get her to send me a photo that she has a beautiful photo in the quarters taken from the uh, top of the display um looking down and it really shows how after a century how dirty the plaza had gotten just from weather and they spent last summer cleaning the plaza the, the the memorial amphitheater and the tomb and when you go up there this time you're not going to recognize it's going to be look like it's brand spanking new in 1921 wow, wow. i'll bring sunglasses for the yeah, glare it's awesome yeah that's great okay as we wrap up i have one last question for you i just i'll just stay on all night yeah. um so what what else haven't we learned that maybe our listeners should know or would be intrigued to learn? I mean, we've already got some good gems in here, but what what else what else can you do you want to share as a as a parting shot? Well, I I think that just um, interacting with uh, you know our society is is primary mission is education, so we are available to anyone, um, especially now in our Zoom era uh, yeah. of reaching out into. Um, civic organizations or schools or veterans groups or just somebody that wants to chit chat 
we uh, try and provide tomb guards for free to come, especially when COVID's over, we'll, we'll come in person and we'll talk about all of this. Tell you about the history of the Unknown Soldiers, how it all came about, and a little bit about the Sentinels. Um, and, and that's free. We, you know, we don't ask a dime in, in return because our primary mission when we were there is honoring. And as we've left and now we've become former Tomb Guards, our old guys, as I like to call us, uh, you know, our primary mission is education and making sure that people understand the why behind the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, not just the fact that there's a sentinel that, that walks a mat. So right. that is an easy way to get a hold of, of a, an educational project or, you know, whether Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts that need something to do find a tomb guard, have them come talk to your, your, your community. And, um, we're more than happy to, if, if you let me stay on here, we'll talk for hours. Yep. I, I, and I could, this is awesome. It, it has been, it really has been an honor and, and just been fun and, and honoring and educating, um, to have you on this podcast today and, and the work that you do and that the society does every day is so important to making sure that the sacrifice of our nation's service members is always appreciated and never forgotten. And it's a mission that's both appreciated and shared by the National Medal of Honor Museum. And that is a great partnership. So for listeners who wanna learn more about the Society of the Honor Guard for the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, you can visit tombguard.org. So tombguard.org. And Sergeant Major McElvena, I wanna say thank you again for your time and your insights. And uh, this is this really has been fascinating and, and educational and it has been an honor. So all those missions that you're setting out to do uh, have been accomplished. So thank you again. Thank you, Mo. It, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it's been a good time. And anytime you wanna bend our ear and learn a little bit more, just give us a call and, and we will be glad to, uh, to talk about this uh, and, and how it ties back to the Medal of Honor. All right. Well, that was fascinating. And uh, and uh, Sergeant Major McElvena has given us plenty of ways that we can remember our fallen. And uh, again, I love the Never Forget Garden. So make sure you get out there and plant one or buy one and however you want to remember. And to learn more about the National Medal of Honor Museum, please visit mohmuseum.org. And please join us next time on the Mission Inspired Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you.